Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The Old Testament reading comes from Isaiah chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. Listen for the word of the Lord. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city of heap, the fortified city of a ruin. The palace of aliens is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a refuge to the poor, a refuge to the needy in their distress, a shelter from the rainstorm and a shade from the heat. When the blast of the ruthless was like a winter rainstorm, the noise of aliens like heat in a dry place, you subdue the heat with the shade of clouds. The song of the ruthless was stilled. On this mountain, of Lo- uh, on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wines strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces, and the disgrace of his people will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him so that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 4. Listen again to God's word for us. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in prayer. Gracious Lord, the preaching of your word, with the blessing of your spirit, grant that insofar as it is true to your everlasting goodness, it shall be undergirded by your power and by your love. 
Grant that insofar as it is false, it shall be swiftly forgotten and do no harm. Above all, God, grant that this sermon and our whole worship service may grow us in your love and our love for one another. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. This passage we have from Paul today is another powerful one from Philippians. It's one of those passages of scripture that's a blessing to memorize so that it's just sitting there in your heart, ready to go, ready to walk alongside you when you need it most. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Paul wrote these words from a jail cell. While scholars debate precisely where and when Paul was, the key point is that he wrote these words under arrest and with his death, his execution, as a real possibility lying before him. Paul talks about his imprisonment and his possible death earlier in the letter. But despite his arrest, despite the potential threat to his life, Paul wrote with a confidence an assurance, a trust that enabled him to move through the world and to encourage others to move through the world, knowing that no matter what happens, their creator cares for them. Their creator has got their back and has got a purpose for them in the face of anything and everything. Paul rejoiced in the Lord, even in prison, even facing death, and encouraged the church in Philippi to do the same because he knew two fundamental truths. First, he knew he's a creature of God, made part of a good creation and in God's image to reflect divine, creative love in the world. And second, he knew that even though he sinfully strayed from that inborn mission to reflect divine, creative love in the world, even though Paul had fallen woefully short of God's image in ways that warranted divine wrath, God had borne that very wrath on his behalf through the saving life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ so that Paul might be reborn to life abundant in love with God and his neighbor as himself. Because Paul knew this twofold reality revealed in Jesus Christ that God is his creator and his redeemer, Paul could face anything and would face everything, even at the risk of arrest, persecution, execution, to testify to others that God is their creator and their redeemer, too. Paul committed his time, his talents, his attention, his treasure, to calling people to turn, repent, and embrace this twofold truth. Paul called on everybody to receive the justification they'd been offered in Christ Jesus and carry out the redeeming movement of the Holy Spirit in their everyday lives, their work, their play, their relationships, to bear out the fruit of the Spirit with their heads and hearts and hands, transforming how they see the world, see others, see themselves. Paul's rejoicing in the Lord and rejoicing and the rejoicing to which he calls the Philippians and every follower of Christ, it's rooted in the fact that God is our creator and our redeemer. Now for those outside of the church and those in the church, we should note that this can often feel abstract, 
For those outside the church, the idea that God is our caring creator and redeemer can seem like, at best, wishful thinking. For those in the church, it can sometimes seem like a theological idea that they affirm, but might not feel deeply in their bones. And this is where I think those anxieties, those worries that Paul talks about in this passage as well, begin to creep in. We find ourselves worrying regularly about lots of things. We worry about violence and abuse in the world. We worry about suffering and wrongdoing. Often the news and social media provide a steady stream of misery beyond anything we could mentally or emotionally or spiritually grasp. We worry about politics and politicians and policies. We worry about right versus wrong, justice versus injustice, security versus chaos. We worry about our values and practices. We worry about the traditions and communities that we care about about being protected and passed on to future generations. Within our homes, we worry about our loved ones. We worry about having enough resources, enough money, We worry about our health and the health of our loved ones. We worry about kids and grandkids and their growth just as readily as we worry about our age and our decline. Within workplaces and communities, we worry about what other people think about us. We worry about whether we're not getting enough credit or conversely, if we're getting too much blame. More than we might like to admit, we worry a lot about how we measure up. Homes, portfolios, pocketbooks, looks, grades, careers, promotions, clothing, cars, accomplishments, press, affection. We worry about how we measure up on these fronts. Who's doing more? Who's got more? Who's doing better than we are? My son, Eason, my oldest son, and I talk about this as the ranking game, which is sadly just about as rampant and rapacious in childhood as it is in adulthood. In the ranking game, we pursue work, play, relationships, here and now, as, as though they're the source of our true value and worth, as opposed to the fact that we're made in God's image and saved through Jesus Christ. We worry about these kinds of things in the ranking game often because we treat work and play and relationships in this life as though they are the end-all and be-all rather than places in which we've been planted by God to bear witness to and fruit of the Holy Spirit, to shine forth the love of God and neighbor as ourselves, even as we await and look to the full kingdom come. It's hard not to worry, though. If you're anything like me, though, one of the most powerful things you can do to unravel a worry, to lessen its grip over your heart and your mind and your actions, is to name it, to identify it. If you've ever had something weighing on your heart, I hope you've had the experience of finally sharing it with someone who cares about you deeply and feeling almost immediately the weight lessening by the sheer fact that someone else knows, that someone else cares, that someone else is there 
to carry it with you, whatever that may now entail. When we pray, sisters and brothers, we can similarly but all the more powerfully share our worries with God, with the one who cares about us, knows us more deeply than even our closest friend or loved one, because God's the one who made us and saved us. To open up honestly and vocally about what's weighing on you, on your heart, with God, whatever it is, shines light on it in ways that are often healing beyond anything we could imagine or even understand. And Paul encouraged the Philippians not to worry by taking their concerns, their hardships that they face, to God in prayer with thanksgiving, instead of letting those worries eat away at them. The way into rejoicing in the Lord always and winding down worry is, as Paul wrote, through prayer. Simply saying to God, Lord, thank you for making me and saving me. Thank you for being my creator and redeemer. And then directly, specifically, sharing whatever is on your heart, whatever is weighing you down, talking with God about it in prayer as long as you need to. With many prayers, or rather with many worries, when we take them to God in prayer, God helps us realize that many of those worries are over things that are not truly worth our worry. For instance, in prayer, if we're worrying about something in the old ranking game, in prayer, God helps us realize that the ranking game holds no true joy or goodness that's worth worrying about. Because nobody, in the end, really wins the ranking game. Even when you grab the title and people's praise, you don't hold it for long. And before you know it, few people, if anybody, really care that much about what you did last year or five years ago or five decades ago. The ranking game has marched on. Sometimes, though, our worries are over things that are far more serious, that cut far deeper into our hearts. We worry about health especially about the health of our loved ones. We worry about having enough money to meet basic needs, shelter, food, medicine. We worry about maybe not having deep friendships or having severely strained relationships with family or past friends. These are worries that aren't born out of any ranking game, but out of the way that we're made in God's image to give and receive love together. But it's in naming even these worries, these more serious worries, with Christ, with God in prayer, in thanksgiving to our Creator and Redeemer, that we come over time to know in our bones that whatever has gone wrong or could go wrong is not the end. The worries that we have over the wounds in this life, wounds we've already suffered or wounds we may suffer in days to come, wounds that cut to the marrow, Worrying about these things is understandable. But when, in prayer with God and and encouragement with one another, we remember that our true citizenship is in the kingdom of God and the resurrection to come, 
and that our role here and now is, is as ambassadors of God's reconciling love. When we remember that in prayer and in encouragement with one another, we know that those losses and those sorrows, those things that we worry about, they're real. But they hit us within the grander arc that stretches from our creation to our salvation. And while many of those wounds, many of those wrongs, may not be healed here and now, we know that they will be healed in the world to come. It's when we can prayerfully let our hearts and our minds rest in the reality that we are loved so deeply and we are made to love God and others and ourselves so deeply that we increasingly find ourselves less gripped by the worries and more free, more able to respond to others and the situations around us, whatever they may be, with that fruit of the Spirit, with generosity and patience, with forgiveness and compassion, with kindness and peace, with assurance and hope that no matter what happens here and now, God has had and will have our back. We know whose we are and where we are headed in ways that let us be comfortable in our own skin in ways that let us love our maker and love ourselves and love others as ourselves, as ones made in the image of God. Now, knowing deep in our bones these two core realities, that God is our creator and our redeemer, our Lord and our savior, I think these also generate two kinds of rejoicing. Knowing these two core realities of God as our creator and redeemer generate two complementary kinds of rejoicing. The first is a childlike delight in the goodness of creation, in God as our creator. And the second is a mature hope in the goodness of salvation, in God as our savior. Now that childlike delight entails reveling, often headlong, in the goodness of creation. For instance, that the ring of fire eclipse, I don't know if anybody saw pictures of it. I imagine nobody who's here right now was there to see it in person. But the ring of fire eclipse yesterday had folks across generations fixed in wonder, staring at the skies at that incredible sight. And the James Webb Telescope similarly routinely beams back photos from outer space that pull you up short in their beauty and in the expanse of the good creation of which God's made us a part. We can find the kind of childlike delight we might take at those images too, though, in our ordinary lives, in everyday life, any time that we see or hear God's goodness, and any time that we actively join in God's goodness. For instance, when my sons, Easton and Asher, and I are jamming out to a song that we love in the car, we're witnessing, we're hearing God's creative goodness and movement in the gift of music. And when we kick things into another gear and start singing along, or when Eason heads to the piano when we get home to try and play out the melody on the piano, when we shift from rejoicing and simply hearing the music to actually trying to make the music as best we can, we move from simply witnessing, simply seeing, God's goodness in this world to participating in that goodness from God with that childlike delight. 
And we could spend all day, and there would be great value in spending all day naming the ways in which we can see God's goodness and take that childlike delight in it in our everyday lives. This is one of the prime things in which we can give thanks to God in prayer. And one of the prime ways in which we can come to see the movement of God all around us, all the time. But that childlike delight, too, is not the only type of rejoicing we have in the Lord. And we know that that childlike, as well, childlike delight is also something that time, as we age, can seem to beat out of us. Because we know that all, we know all too well that all too often this world, while made good, here and now falls so far short of the full glory of God. We know all too well as we grow that sin and suffering, death and loss, these all cut against the goodness of God's creation. And it's in the face of these hardships that the second type of rejoicing in the Lord kicks in. When we rejoice in God, not only as our creator, but, but also as our savior in Christ Jesus, our crucified, risen Messiah. This rejoicing entails a mature hope in the resurrection and the world to come. This rejoicing, this mature hope, doesn't mean that we have a shallow or cheery disposition all the time, as though the hardships of this world don't matter. But this rejoicing, this mature hope, it's often, honestly, a heavy joy, one that comes in the teeth of all the ways that the world has gone wrong. But this rejoicing and mature hope helps us know that while the hardships of this life do matter, they matter again within the full grand arc of creation and redemption, an arc in which we are made and called to participate pointing all the way from cradle to grave with joy to the goodness of creation and the goodness of salvation. This mature hope is what led Paul to rejoice even in prison and to call all of us to rejoice in the Lord always, no matter what we face, because we know that our Savior lives. With mature hope, we rejoice in the resurrection to come when, in the words of the prophet Isaiah, that we heard this morning, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wine strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the covering that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever when the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces. Rejoice in the Lord always, brothers and sisters. I will say again, rejoice with childlike delight. We rejoice and give thanks for the goodness that this world has to offer under God, our creator. And with mature hope, we rejoice and give thanks for the goodness of the world to come under God, our Redeemer. So let us all 
together encourage one another to rejoice in the Lord through this childlike delight, through this mature hope. Let us all join in prayer with our Creator and our Redeemer, naming any worries directly and specifically with our Maker, no matter how small or how big they may be, as often as we need to in our hearts, so that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, can guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus and lead us to see every moment, every situation, every challenge, even every hardship as an opportunity and opening to reflect divine creative love in this world, to give glory to our creator and redeemer by loving God with and our neighbors as ourselves unto the day of Christ's return and the fullness of God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. To God be the glory, sisters and brothers, forever and ever. Amen.